My guest for today has been a bookstore clerk, a record store manager, an animation art salesman, and game show writer. He currently writes for AVN and has had more than 1,500 video reviews and has a contact list on a cell phone that would fetch six figures on eBay. Todd Hunter. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Todd, I know what you mean about that that phone book. Uh, gosh, time really flies, but it's probably been it's probably been a decade since I have been in and around the adult industry, and uh-huh. I too, I mean, not like yours, mine, I'm sure, paled in comparison to you. But still, mm-hmm. it was. I mean, I had about uh, you know a lot i mean my friends would call me when when they had their bachelor party <laughs> uh, <laughs> um could, yeah could you introduce me to so and so yeah yeah well i mean just i mean a, a couple of them did i can't remember but we're going to get all into that but i want to start at the beginning where are you okay. from originally like where were you born and uh, raised I was born in Los Angeles. I grew up here. I was uh, 14 years old before I found out not everybody's grandfather had an Oscar. Hmm. Wow. So you're, you definitely are a, a child of Hollywood. Yes. What, what is it? Uh, I'm guessing 60s, 50s, 60s that you... you was well, when, it, I, when I was born? No, just when you primarily grew up, like, you know, from... Uh, four, uh, five I don't call myself I... a child of the 60s. I really came of age during the hippie era. Uh-huh. And what was that experience like? I mean, given how old you were, I mean, what, what, how did you so... Because that was a... a There's quite a lot going on in the 60s. Quite a bit. I'll tell you, I was a late bloomer. I didn't really uh, dive in to living until I was in my early 20s. Hmm. Uh, when I turned tw- right before I turned 21, I spent eight weeks in London just on vacation, and it really opened my eyes to what that there's a world out there. Were you a popular kid growing up? No, no, I, I was one of those nerd types. Well, you're really smart. Uh, I mean, I've always thought you were smart, but my guess is because you're an avid reader that you read a lot. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was uh, I was reading from a very young age. In fact, one time on uh, my family took a vacation house on Balboa down in Orange County, and I read a Hardy Boy book every day for a month. Every day, every night at dinner, I would start reading it. I would finish it up in the morning and then walk down to the bookstore and buy another one. And, and who were some of your favorite teachers growing up and, and why were they your favorite teachers? My favorite teachers were, I had an English teacher in high school who was very influential. Um, I had a um, journalism teacher in high school who was terrific. He taught me about using action verbs and, you know, helped me make my writing come alive. So you have wanted to be a, a writer from the time you were how old? Uh, I was, well, you know, I was writing... As a high school student, I did a lot of writing, and then I just sort of stopped. And I started again when I, uh, God, this must be mid-80s when I started writing for game shows. Uh, Any particular reason why you stopped and then started again? Lack of encouragement and a little bit of laziness. I mean, I I was never really driven. I was one of those people who just had to get those words on, uh, on paper. And had to get them in front of people. Um, I like it, but it, it's never been, you know, I've got to express myself. Mm-hmm. 
What was your first job? Uh, counter jockey at McDonald's. And you were about how old then? Uh, 17. I just graduated high school. What What was your, your first writing job? My first writing job? Can you remember the first piece that you ever wrote that was published? Um, God, a uh, couple of letters to the... I used to write letters to the editor of the LA Times all the time. I was in there. Um, people knew me. People knew my name. I would, you know, they would see my name in print and they would know who I was. Um, I was a, a fixture in the LA Times calendar section for a couple decades. Hmm. And I, uh, but I really first, my first paid writing job was uh, Jeopardy. And, and how did that evolve? How did you, how, how, how did that come up? I mean, I, I remember reading that you were a big game show fan. Yeah. Well, I had been a contestant on Jeopardy back in the 70s. And um, when Merv Griffin decided to revive Jeopardy, they went to the old contestant pool, the old contestant files, to find people who could play the um, who could play the pilot. And the pilot was under like really loose uh, rules. I mean, people just were hanging out between uh, between takes. And I said, "How do you get a job writing this stuff?" And they said, "Write some material, send it in." And I wrote some material and sent it in, and I made the third cut based on my material. And that was in 1984. And then they had it down to two people, myself and a guy by the name of Stephen Dorfman. And they went with Stephen. And I was the first person they hired in the, at the beginning of the second season when they doubled the size of the writing staff. And when I met Steven and I saw the kind of stuff he was cranking out, I realized you guys did the right thing. He's much better than I am. Hmm. What do you I mean, I felt like Tommy Lasorda getting cut from the Dodgers for, for Sandy Koufax. You know, I'm good. <laughs> but th this guy's world class. You huh. did exactly the right thing. What do you think attributes to the popularity of those shows? I, uh, game shows? Yeah, uh, I mean, like real... they've been on for decades. <laughs> Uh -huh. Well, Jeopardy has been on for decades. Um, I think the thing about game shows is they show regular people showing off what they can do. I mean, it goes back to Beat the Clock. I mean, the stunt shows of the 50s and then the hard question shows like 21. And uh, then there are the fun games, things like Family Feud, where you have to find 10 different answers to a particular question. And it's just a matter of watching real people show off what they can do. And uh, you met your wife. Yes, back in 1978, when we were both contestants on Jeopardy. That's where we met. Do you want, you want to share the kind of intimate details of how that spark got lit? Sure. Um, well, we were... Okay. Sometime during the... Contest... Well, the contestants were hanging out between shows somebody asked about a question that was in the run-through that she did not know. And this young woman came up with the answer and said, I'm only the second person to ever get it. And I walked over and I shook her hand and said, hi, I'm the first. <laughs> so we start, you know, sizing each other up that early. And then after a while, somebody pointed out they were a Gemini, and the voices started popping up all over the room. I'm a Gemini, I'm a Gemini, I'm a Gemini. I'm Nine Geminis out of 12 contestants. Well, we started trading birthdays, and the young lady and I had the same birthday. Two years apart, but the same day. 
And um, after we both played, um, we met and started dating. And we wound up uh, getting married the same week I started working at Jeopardy. Well, I think that that's a beautiful thing. And this is someone you're still with today? We're still, yeah. Wow, that's 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 we, really. We just something. celebrated our birthday last week. Living in Hollywood and, and to have such an enduring <laughs> relationship. Yeah. Uh, did you ever take any classes in journalism, or or are you basically self-taught just from all the books that you've read? I'm not self-taught. I took some journalism classes in college. I was primarily a radio, TV, film production major, but I learned writing. Uh, my my main writing teacher had written for the Marx Brothers. And I also took a seminar that was led by Lucille Ball. Hmm, so, wow. I, so I was very familiar with, you know, the nature of writing in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. What do you think makes for good content? Something that you've written in, that you know, that you know, well, I guess you never know, but that you have a mm -hmm. strong feeling it's going to resonate with, with the audience that you're the way. For. Okay. The, it, it's two diametrically opposed things. Re relatability and surprise. You have to have a situation that people can understand and relate to, but you have to throw in elements that will entertain them, that will amuse them, that will shock them, that will scare them. Something, you have to throw in something offbeat. You have to throw in the element of surprise, but it can't be surprise, surprise, surprise. It's got to have a basis in reality who are some of your favorite writers or, or journalists and and why are are they your favorites okay my favorite writer is robert benchley uh algonquin wit writer of like 15 books he used to throw off stories that were relatable but also they had that element of surprise uh there is a thing he did called Carnival Time in Sunny Los Los, which was a South American country he invented. And he just built an entire culture around it. And um, he wrote things like how tough it is to write an article. And he, um, like I said, he was part of the Algonquin Roundtable. And he was, he used to hang out with, uh, you know, Alexander Wolcott and uh, Dorothy Parker. And he also made short films for MGM. And I always liked his kind of amused attitude that he was just sort of surprised at what was going on and observing. Interesting. So uh, you've had an interest in writing different kinds of things, not just yes. kind of one. And and the the path that led you to become a writer for Jeopardy was being mm -hmm. was watching them first, and then you just uh, contacted them and 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 kind of said, "So how do you do this?" And then you mm -hmm. sent in some spec. I wrote spec some spec scripts. material. I wrote like twenty five categories, and I picked the the best ten, mm -hmm. and sent and sent them in. And what was it like working with uh, Alec, or is it Alex? It, it's Alex. Alex, Alex Trebek. Yeah, and he best boss I ever had. Hmm. He was amazing. His uh, his door was always open. He was usually the there were three people. Stephen, Alex, and I were the first three people in the office every morning. We'd be there by you know eight thirty nine o'clock. Everybody else would breeze in about ten when they felt like it. Mm -hmm. But um, he was 
open to suggestion. He took the work seriously, but not himself. He enjoyed the hell out of being the producer of Jeopardy, which he was for the first three or four years of the show. And he was, um, it was great working with him. Well, I had no idea that he was a producer until I was <laughs> reading on you. So he's really responsible yeah. for shaping that that whole show. He's not just the host. Right. Well, he was responsible for, taking, for shaping the show. And also the show was built around him. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at those first three, four seasons, there was this kind of aloof, intelligent, snarky attitude, which is what Alex had. And we just all latched onto that. And the idea was, we're smart. Contestants are smart. Let's see what we got. And we would just throw around ideas. I mean, I remember one time Stephen came up with a category called Stupid Answers. And it was things that were like obviously put right there in the clue. All you had to do is find the right word. Uh, my favorite was word in the center of the seal of Huntsville, Alabama. And I said, is it Huntsville? He said, no. Is it Alabama? He said, no. Is it seal? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the, the word in the middle of the seal of Huntsville, Alabama. Huh. And, and it was just a matter of, you know, we know stuff, you know stuff, let, let's have fun. And, and what brought on the trend? Well, what would you go into next? So, and, and what made you stop writing for, for Jeopardy and game shows in general? What was the, well, the what happened of? was um, a new producer came in at Jeopardy and he started just like firing everybody who had been hired by Alex and replacing them with his own people. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I was one of them. Um, it was, it was really hard, but I got a job on another show the next week. So I was really lucky in that regard. It was a brand new show that was starting up called The Challengers. It was a hard question game show based on white hot current events. And we found out the hard way that America did not care about a white hot current events based game show. And we had really, you know, we, 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 air, we taped that show on Fridays to air it the next week. I mean, the shows had dates on them. And we had a sack full of contemporary information. I mean, we're pulling stuff out of the newspaper on tape day to put into the show. And it just, um, I think America just said, we have one smart game show, we don't need another. How, how much time did you spend, like how many years did you spend as a writer for game shows in general? I worked on game shows for 10 years, uh, 81 to 91. And then what did you go into? I did some freelance editing. Mm -hmm. I I did a little uh, little writing, um, freelance editing, and then I happened onto the AVN job in 1997. It kind of like kind of meant to be kind of thing. Like it's not something you pursued, but just situations kind of led it to to be something for you to seriously consider. Well, what happened was I was a reader of AVN, and I really liked the inside look it gave at the adult industry because I grew up reading the trades, a Hollywood reporter in Daily Variety, and I liked the inside scoop. I didn't much care 
about the dopey questions the fame magazines asked the girls. I wanted to know who was, you know, who's directing, who's selling scripts, who, you know, the inside stuff. And one day, one magazine, I look in the back and it says, we're looking for writers. We're looking for critics. Uh, do you know the adult industry? Do you have a computer? Do you live in L.A.? Can you write? Can you be a smart ass? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, they gave me a couple of videos to review. They liked my reviews. And I was a freelancer there for a year, and then I went on staff. Can can a writer make enough to retire comfortably in the adult entertainment industry? Not only writers like you do, but these writers that write scripts and stuff. Um, probably not anymore. Hmm. Uh, there's not a whole lot of demand for plot-driven video. A lot of the companies that used to do them aren't anymore. Um, Wicked has gone down. Vivid is long gone. Um, Digital Playground is still... They're, they're sort of the... What's the word I'm looking for? The, the boutique, the... Um, the boutique operation of Manwin, but they're putting out maybe two or three a year. Um, there's a lot of interest in vignettes, little self-contained 20 and 30 minute stories, but whole movies, uh, they're dead. Does the OnlyFans have something to do with that as well? Is a lot of that business going over there? Um no, that no, not really. Lonely Fan is just the latest iteration of the of the scene. The, the fact that people look at scenes instead of whole movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I used to call it the fast forward aesthetic because there were guys who would you know rent whole movies and just fast forward to the good parts. Mm-hmm. And then people like John Stalliano started making movies that were just sex scenes with no connecting narrative and that is where gonzo and all sex came from and practically everything is now all sex and sometimes it's not even whole movies i mean people will put up a scene on OnlyFans and sell it and it has no plot no story just two people going at it which can be quite entertaining but it's not a movie i would think that uh that's a little disappointing for you also because it's can it gives you so much more material to work when it's an actual movie you know um yeah it, movies are easier to review uh but i can still review um you know a collection of sex scenes um <clears throat> some companies uh the vixen people particularly uh are very stylized and you can just dive in and start talking about how uh somebody is you know there's a scene with a poker game setting up the sex scene and you can talk about how you know they the fondling the chips you can talk about what's going on so you can use your descriptive uh, muscles but the days of writing a you know essay about the merits of a particular plot driven movie i haven't done that in years how are these people making money when there's all this free adult content on the internet. And like you were saying, it's just a bunch of clips. Yeah. Well, bottom line is you get what you pay for and the free stuff is crap. 
Um, if you subscribe to a particular performer or a particular company, there's a degree of quality you can expect because you're paying for it. And you go to XYZ company because you like their stuff and they will deliver for you because that's what they do and that's what you want. But one of the problems that people have in the industry is the idea that adult content should be free. Um, it's the same problem the music industry had and the music industry pulled themselves out of it. Uh, adult is getting closer to that with uh, subscription availability from OnlyFans and from companies. Um, but we aren't there yet. People still have this idea that you shouldn't have to pay. And there are people who are performers and people who are camera people and people who are, you know, post-production people who got to eat. And if people aren't buying their stuff and they don't get new gigs, then the new material drives up. What is considered a, a long career in the adult entertainment business for performers? I, I know uh, in my preparation to, to get uh, <laughs> to do my interview with you, uh, I, I, I did some porn hubbing. Mm -hmm. And none of those, I, I have no idea who those people, I mean, I was probably, I don't know how long I was involved in the adult entertainment business. Gosh, I really can't remember. Somewhere between, I'm going to guess five years just mm -hmm. around there. And yeah. I don't, none of those people that I was, I, I think I saw, well, I see, I saw Nina Hartley. It seems like she's still mm -hmm. going. Um, I saw Nina Hartley on Friday at a uh, screening of Deep Throat. There was a panel discussion she was a part of it yeah she's definitely a, a gem for the adult industry uh yeah such an articulate woman that is yeah. pro you know positive pro sex but yeah. but smarter than you know most of the people out there um right yeah although now more a elder statesman uh mm -hmm. than a uh than a working performer yeah yeah it seems like the adult business you can make a good living if you're a woman mm. kind of no matter i mean there's something for everyone there's uh people that are into bbw um, right there there uh people that are into older people i mean I, you know i saw <laughs> some stuff came up with you know people older than Nina Hartley. Uh, mm -hmm. I yeah, guess no, everybody has an audience. It's just a matter of finding them. In fact, I've heard that that's your best chance of making money or good money is is finding that fetish audience that, you know, that's what will do it. A loyal paying audience, really. I mean, that goes for, you know, the younger ones too, younger newbies. I mean, they're trying to find people who will keep buying their content because mm -hmm. it's easier to keep your customers happy than to find new customers. How is this this OnlyFans affecting the male performers in the industry? Well, the big problem with male performers, and it's a problem they've had forever, is they're basically props for the girls. Uh, every, nobody turn, tunes in to see the guys. Uh, something that many guys have found out when they tried to start their own lines. They, uh, it's just, they're along for the ride. 
They, they get laid and they get some money for their efforts. And, you know, they're not going to be stars. They're just going to be continuously working. And the guys who can deliver do work a lot, hmm. which is why you see the, you know, a new girl every week and, uh, you know, the same 10 guys. Well, it seems that it is a lot harder job, no pun intended, than I think the average person thinks. I mean, I know I was on a set. Well, I know when mm-hmm. I was around and in, in involved in, in the business, I mean, there were a lot of, there was Viagra. I mean, like one gentleman, I think he had to take so much Viagra that, that, that his tongue was blue. Okay. And, and, and now it's beyond that. I'm hearing that there, there are these other things that implanting things. And I mean, yeah. To, I mean, there's there's injections. There's a lot of ways to get that done. But even but if that's not good for you don't, them. even if you don't have wood trouble, mm-hmm. even if you don't have a problem with that, there's you know a matter of fitness. There's a matter of stamina. I mean, it's a workout. Yeah, and, and I think it takes a certain type of person to be able to do it because it's it would be very distracting for most people. For mm-hmm. most guys, I mean, a woman, it's a different because she can. I mean, there are ways you can work around that. But yeah, I remember can, being you can on, fake that. On, on the set and I'm forgetting the gentleman's name, but he was, you know, a guy that worked a lot. And mm-hmm. I remember uh, being on set and like, they were waiting, like it was like an hour and a half before he could kind of get enough going to make it happen. I, I guess maybe, and that's I, the interesting thing too. I was, you know, looking at this, this, uh, these, these clips recently, <laughs> the guys are walking into the shot with a heart on, I mean, right. you know, so that, that's kind of telling you they're probably, pre-doing something you know yeah well even if it's you know totally legit just you know a little lube and a little hand hand, hand action they're, they're still you know they come in ready and then stopping and starting and and having to maintain that erection i mean it's it's a a, a difficult thing i i kind of look at them as kind of unsung heroes because I oh mean, yeah no, they, for... they they do they do the work they do they do the yeoman's work and they get you know little thanks little money and they don't you know the, it's got to be the sexual satisfaction for a lot of them because there's nothing else going for them well you know it was really interesting because i was covering the quote-unquote professionals as well as the quote-unquote amateurs mm-hmm. and it seemed more from from the little time that i was in it that the professionals it was a different kind of vibe than the amateurs i mean the amateurs really seem like those were the really horny guys <laughs> yeah you know i remember this one guy that popped like six times within an hour and a half oh and how old was he he was i think he was like in his 40s then he was just Holy i don't know, wired in this weird kind of way but this was a good release for him because, I'll and there's say. some people, you know, I mean, when I was on sets, you know, I'm not going to get too graphic, but you could see why they were <laughs> porn stars, these guys, because oh, yeah. they were endowed larger than most, than mm-hmm. probably most would frighten <laughs> your average, average, average woman. I mean, I remember seeing this right. one gentleman that his, his schlong was literally past his kneecap. And, Whoa, you know, okay. <laughs> you, you know, it's good. I think I know who that guy is. <laughs> so how does, well, let me go back a second just to get a, a mm-hmm. number, but what around, what, what is considered a, a long career in the adult industry for women performers and then also for male performers? 
Like is Lexington Steel still out and doing his thing, or? I haven't seen stuff from him. I did see him at the last AVN award show. So he's, you know, he hasn't died. I mean, he he's still active, but I don't think I've seen him do any scenes lately. But a good a good career for a woman is five years. Hmm. And for and and then if you can stretch it longer, great, good for you. And guys, I mean, I, I've known guys who've gone. 15 20 years i mean peter north tony tedeschi um hmm. dave hardman i mean these guys just kept going and going and going because they can deliver so why do you think the woman's shelf life so to speak is less because they they could work longer because you know they're people that certainly could work past 25 past 30 past 35 past 40 you know maybe when you're getting past 50 then maybe you're starting to narrow it down to that fetish but well the thing is that the industry thrives on new talent Hmm. and no matter how good you are in a year you're not new anymore and if you're good and you're professional and people want to call you back if you can turn in a good scene you'll get called back but after five years, you, as a female performer, you've probably done it all, seen it all, and want to get the hell out. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I did notice just from reading, I think it was reading some stuff that you did, a lot of people coming, like a lot of comebacks. So mm-hmm. w- what makes them want to, like, how is it hard where, where they have a shelf life of generally five years, and then what makes them want to come back is it purely the money or is it other things too i i think it's the money only because if you haven't developed other skills it's difficult to find other work after you've been a performer because you get get in at 18 20 you get out at 25 if you haven't finished college then we're looking at 30 and it's very difficult to start at 30 at anything. Mm-hmm. And if you go to, you take that money that you made and banked because you didn't do anything stupid with it and you go to college and you get out and now what? You're going into entry level jobs at, you know, 25, 30,000 a year and you were making three, five times that as a porn star. Hell, is there a demand? Can I go back? <laughs> 